Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to our 14th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And today we have the great privilege of having Brian McLaren with us at our symposium. He is the author or co-author of at least 15 books, countless magazine articles, an infinite number of blog postings. And his most famous book, perhaps to some, would be a, a book entitled A New Kind of Christian, which became a first volume in a very popular trilogy. Other recent books titled A Generous Orthodoxy, that has a subtitle that is too long for television. And uh, another called Everything Must Change, and his most recent book just released in 2009 called Finding Our Way Again. Brian McLaren, welcome to our symposium. So good to be here, thank you. You started out as an English major and an English professor you taught English at the right, and writing at the college level, then you became a pastor, and now you pretty much write all the time. So you've come full circle. I have. This, so it's all about writing again now for you, is that right? Yeah, it is. I feel so lucky. You know, my, my mother uh, has in a box somewhere in a closet uh, a, a cartoon book that I wrote when I was about five years old, and uh, so apparently I had it going in me then. So you had the graphic novel thing going at that time? It was a graphic time? novel yeah. thing, and it, it, I remember the title. It was called My Favorite Monster, because I like drawing monsters, and I, I told my mother, I, when I grow up, I want to be an Arthur. Nice. A-R-T-H-E-R. I, I had it all mixed up in there. but Wow, wow. That's impressive. The, uh, okay, that'll be released at some point, I assume. Posthumously, I'm sure. <laughs> it seems like every time I go into a bookstore, Brian, I see that you've got a new book or that you're editing a collection or writing a foreword. And it isn't just the same stuff packaged differently like some authors. Uh, this, is all, this is all new. Now, my question is, does writing come a little more easily for you than it does for some of the rest of people? Well, I, I, here's where I feel so lucky, uh, Dean, because I, I actually love to write. Uh, if you give me a choice between uh, any ten things... You know, there's not many that will nudge writing out, so I actually love to do it. I love the act of sitting there and thinking. I love the kind of concentration. Uh, But I also think part of this is from my years as a pastor, because as a pastor, I was generating new content at least once a week. And, you know, it it puts a certain work ethic and a certain sort of content uh, hunger in you. So I think put those two things together, and that's probably... That's probably why uh, I'm, I'm producing so much. Although some people might just say it's an uh, inflated sense of self-worth that you, you, know, you think you have so much worth saying. But. I, I think it's a little deeper than that. I, I, it, it, so there's a discipline to it that you were comfortable with, and that's, that's one of the reasons. Well, you know, the funny thing, when I taught English, I was a writing teacher. And so uh, I, I taught freshman comp, junior composition, advanced composition. And then I worked with a lot of graduate students who were having all kinds of writing problems and working on their dissertation. And so this was when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And I think it, that got me thinking about how people write. You know, everybody, I think you could probably make some kind of uh, strong correlation between a person's Myers-Briggs type or, you know, something about their personality type and the way they write. But for me, I'm very lucky that the way I write works pretty well with my life. So. 
You took a really interesting approach in the book New Kind of Christian um, where you created some characters who were on some kind of a spiritual journey. One was about to give up. I assume the dialogue between those, uh, those characters was similar to some discussions you had in real life with people over the years and that the, the things that they were going through in that entire trilogy are composites of real events and real people. So why not tell them as real events? Why not, why not just say this is, this is what happened? Why, why the need to fictionalize them? Well, it's, it, actually, there's an interesting story behind that. Uh, my first book was called Church on the Other Side, and it was a prose book. And it got really positive reviews, uh, something I'm glad happened at least once in my career. But it, it got all positive reviews, except it had one critical review. It wasn't negative, but here's what the person wrote. A uh, very smart guy. He said, if McLaren means what he's saying, and he was referring to a shift that we're going through from a, a modern to a postmodern culture, all that that means. If McLaren means what he says, he shouldn't be writing prose. He should be writing fiction or poetry. Well, I filed that away, and in fact, I met him at some point after, and I think he was a little nervous that I would be upset. I said, no, I think you're right. I just don't think I'm ready to write fiction yet. And uh, so I started writing a new kind of Christian as nonfiction, exactly what you're saying. It would have been a set of chapters and, you know, maybe some illustrations, anecdotes. But I was about a fifth of the way into it, and it was 150 pages long, and I thought, this is going to be a 600-page book, and nobody will read it. So... At that point, I thought, what would happen if I tried to turn this into a story? And it was in, it was a, it was, that's how it started. And when I did that, what I found is it was so much more efficient to write in a narrative frame because when you're writing nonfiction, you have to imagine, uh, you have this imaginary reader, and he can kick up any objection to what you're saying. And you have to anticipate and deal with all those objectives, uh, objections. But when you have a fictional context, the only question you have to deal with is the one that that character would come up with. And so it felt like I was able to get to the key issues a whole lot easier and a whole lot faster by putting it in a narrative context. As well, I had had so many conversations with so many different people. Some of them I was on the learning end, some I was on the teaching end, and it, was, it just made sense to try to turn those into a composite. Are you surprised by the number of people who read that book or the rest of the trilogy and have said to you that reading that book was like you had been reading their minds, uh, you know, when, when you wrote it? And I know I underlined a whole bunch of stuff uh, in, in New Kind of Christian when I was reading it, and I thought, wow, I thought I was a freak for, for thinking some of these same things. But I know that's happened to you all over the world. Are you surprised by that? It, I, I, it has been very surprising and very gratifying, especially because when I wrote that book, uh, the place I wrote in my home was down in the basement in this sort of dingy, dark corner. And, you know, you sit down there writing. You, you don't know if anybody's ever going to read it, first of all. Second, you don't know if you'll have any friends left when you finish the book, especially when I felt like I was trying to be honest about some things that it wasn't, acceptable in a lot of re religious contexts to kind of bring those things out into the light. So it has been incredibly gratifying um, and a little bit surprising. But in another way, uh, a number of people have said this through the years, but there's a, a kind of uh, conventional wisdom. What is most personal to me is most universal to you. And I do think there's something that probably a lot of writers discover, that the bigger the risk they take in telling the truth, the, more, the wider the resonance is. 
When you were down in that basement writing this, were there ever moments where you just thought to yourself, I am so on to something? You know, I'm, I'm really channeling something big. Or were you thinking, I hope nobody reads this, you know, and I hope I don't get fired? Well, you know, there was a trilogy, A New Kind of Christian, Story We Find Ourselves In, and Last Word in the Word After That. And I think in A New Kind of Christian, there was a moment toward the end where, as I was writing, I actually started to, to cry. Uh, and it sort of came upon me unexpectedly, but I think it was this sense that, you know, you, 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 you pull these fragments out of yourself, and when you start to see them come together, there was this feeling like, well, exactly as you said, uh, it's kind of onto something. The same thing happened in Story We Find Ourselves in. Very, uh, if any of you who've read the book, there's a, a story when uh, a, a kind of skeptical woman is baptized. And, it, and as I was writing that, that was very emotional for me because I think so many things were coming together. Uh, but the third one in the trilogy, last word in the word after that, my, my wonderful editor uh, from uh, Josie Bass, Cheryl Fullerton, she really had to coach me at the end because I really had cold feet about that. I just thought, am I making the biggest mistake of my life to bring this stuff out? But uh, probably the deepest response has been from readers of that book. So, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that some of the criticism that, that you've gotten is, is that you, you tend to raise questions and, and get people to, to maybe think about things and turn things around and, and think about them. But you don't, uh, the criticisms about you and, uh, um, sometimes are, but he doesn't give any clear answers. And I, I get the impression after reading a lot of your stuff that sometimes answers are overrated. And, uh, and you like to talk a little more about uh, mystery and wonder, but, but that kind of talk drives people crazy. It's sort of ironic, you know, to the degree I'm writing Christian theology and I'm writing for religious people, you would think that Christians would have a high appreciation of wonder and mystery. But it, I think, is part of the dysfunction of certain sectors of the Christian community. It's ridiculous when you think about it, that we would be able to speak of the Creator with the same kind of certainty that we can talk about a recipe for, uh, you know, coleslaw or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little absurd and maybe a little blasphemous, I think. But you're right. I think there is something about, it, about questions. In fact, this is the writing project that I'm involved with right now. I'm writing a book of questions, actually. And uh, uh, the way I say it is that statements can bring you to a new state, but questions can put you on a new quest. And I think the power of questions to get us moving. You see, a state means you're not moving. And, and so much of our uh, religious thinking in the religious world means people wanting to be converted from one state to another state. But I actually think that the most vibrant kind of faith is not a state. It's a quest. It's a journey. It's movement. So I, the questions are uniquely valuable for that. And one of the things, to, to follow up on that, one of the things that you have been very clear about is that you have said that, that the way Christians in this country have gone about doing things is not very representative of how Jesus lived or how the Bible instructs. In fact, I think I read this where you said, for them, Jesus is not their Lord, he's their mascot. What does that mean? <laughs> A number of people have asked that. <laughs> I think my other line from, uh, I think that phrase mascot might be in a generous orthodoxy, but then in Everything Must Change, I said that for many people, Jesus 
is the hood ornament on the guzzling Hummer of Western civilization. A few people have quoted that back. Not, not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> uh, to, you know, uh, I'm just speaking very sincerely as a Christian. I think a lot of us have to make a decision as Christians. I think there are two very different ways of being Christians. One is, I'm a person who believes in the religion called Christianity. And the other is, I'm a person who is enamored and and completely won over to Jesus Christ. And that produces very different approaches to faith. And uh, I think I started as one and have gradually been turning into the other. Now, that doesn't mean I dislike the Christian religion. I'm a part of it. I I love it. But I think sometimes the best way to help the Christian religion is help members of it to be less excited about the religion and more excited about the person. Maybe we need a different word. Should, Should there be a different word for those people? You know, it's interesting. In the New Testament, the word Christian comes up three times. Uh, the word that they like to use to describe themselves w- was the word disciple or follower 263 times in the New Testament. So there might be a little lesson for us there. And the word Christianity occurs zero times. In fact, somebody will help us with this sometime, but the, the etymology, the history of that word is actually a lot more recent than most people think. The earliest, in the early centuries of the Christian faith, people called it the faith or the church. Um, The term Christianity is a really interesting term. It's interesting for people to sort of evaluate, how does that term work in your brain? Because I think for most people, that term goes to a system of belief. Uh, And uh, one of the basic uh, discoveries of my life, I think, has been, and, and this hit me as a pastor, I was a pastor for 24 years, is what if I'm not here as a pastor to proclaim a system of belief, but to lead in a way of life? Very different understandings of the role. You know, this is a very scary notion to some people. I mean, on the one hand, your writings and thinking have have made people really question things and start a new quest and, and, and think things differently and think about God in a bigger way, think about their faith in a bigger way. And yet there are many people who find you a pretty scary guy. I've, and, heard, I've uh, heard that, yeah. And, and, and there are, I mean, there are websites. I, I'm, I know I'm not telling you something you don't already know. They blog about you. I mean, you're the, you're the Antichrist. And it, what, what's up with that? <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy about this, but uh, I'll just tell you two a quick story about that. I, I was in Norway a, year, a couple years ago. And I was in a little town on the west coast of Norway. And it, it, it's a small enough town by U.S. standards that it doesn't take much to get on the front page of the paper. Basically, showing up uh, is newsworthy. So they sent a, a journalist from the local paper to interview me. And I don't, have no idea if he had any religious background, but it was a story. So he's there to cover it. And uh, so he sits down across the table from me. He says, I'm very nervous. I've never been so nervous about an interview. I said, gosh, I hope I'm not that intimidating. And he said, well, he said, last night I Googled your name. And then he pulled out a big, thick, you know, he said, I printed out the websites. Did you know you're the son of Satan? <laughs> so I, I you know, at the end of the interview, he said, would you like these? I said, no, I'll, I'll pass. But Which meant, of course, nothing recorded on his, uh, on his interview. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> That's just something, that if, if you know Satan worship, you'd get that. But... <clears throat> He and I obviously got it. (laughs) But you see, this is what's so interesting as a writer, uh, because when you go back through history, uh, 
the, the words that end up helping people in their faith usually are unsettling to people. And uh, this happens again and again. So uh, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a fighter. I'm not a polemicist. I don't like arguing. I, I try not to defend myself. Um, so it's not something I'm happy about, but it, it feels like it goes with the territory. In, uh, in, in the book, Everything Must Change, you talk about the importance of having a framing story. And I, I just love the way you, you, you talk about story in there. And, and if you could explain what, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a framing story? Well, uh, uh, what got me thinking about this uh, is this amorphous word culture. People use the word in all different kinds of ways. But uh, there's a way of defining culture that says a culture is a group of people who argue about the same things over many generations. It, it, it's a group of people united by disagreement. <laughs> but you see the disagreement, in a way, shows a deeper agreement on, on a deeper level. So, for example, in the West, we have been having an argument that goes way back to Plato and probably before. And it's an argument about the relationship of the one and the many. The rights of the few versus the rights of the many. Uh, and, and so this one and many argument, we don't agree about it. I'm sure today in Congress there are arguments going on that if you trace them back are arguments about the one and the many. That argument unifies us. Uh, in some cultures, the big argument has been the rights of the dead versus the rights of the living. Uh, are, are we allowed to think new thoughts or do we have to be faithful to our ancestors who said things a certain way? I think an argument that we desperately need, this to me is a question I would want to raise, what about the rights of the living in relation to the rights of the not yet living? Uh, now, I think that was an argument that certain Native American cultures had, but not many cultures have had it. I think we need that argument. But uh, this idea that a culture is a group of people united by an argument, that argument spells itself out in a kind of story. And, um, and when I look at our world and I look at different religions and I look at my own faith, you can start to see it as a battle of stories. And within those stories, there's argument, there's tension. But what's the big story? And that, to me, is one of the reasons why we love to read. It's one of the reasons we love to read fiction. Uh, and, and even going back to the ancient myths and fairy tales and all the rest, they end up encoding for us the bigger stories that we're participating in. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by, the, by that with the story that you were raised in, in this very narrow-minded Plymouth Brethren fundamentalist kind of thinking, and yet that didn't, that didn't stay. I mean, you, were, you still you found yourself disconnected because you liked art and you liked music and you liked science. So somehow, though, the story you were raised in didn't, uh, didn't stay. There were elements of it that are irre irrevocably part of me. You know, they're part, it's part of who I am. And there were parts of it that were just too small. I couldn't live within the story. And, you know, this is part of the drama of every person's religious background. Uh, because we inherit a story, or a set of stories, parts of which are essential to our identity, and other parts are going to drive us to drink, you know. And uh, uh, I, I think of, for example, that great novel, My Name is Asher Lev. And here's a young guy with an artistic background who grows up in a sect of, of, of Judaism that doesn't believe in art. And he has to negotiate that. And it's, it's part of the beauty of the book. And, and that, to me, is, it, it's, the, 
It's the bitter sweetness of, religious, of a religious tradition. Parts of it almost kill us, and parts of us give us life. And, and that's, I bet every one of us is working that out. I bet even atheists are working that out, because there's a certain sense that atheism presents a set of stories as well. Uh, you know, what happens when you're a, a faithful atheist? And then you start to kind of experience something that's unexplainable by mathematics or whatever. Then your story doesn't make sense anymore. And it puts you on a quest. Yeah. You know, uh, Potok, the author of My Name is Eshelev, I, I remember reading a, a, an, an anecdote about him where he said that uh, you know, his parents really wanted him to become a, a doctor. And he wanted to be a writer. And they just kept having these disagreements and arguments. And his mother kept saying, you could be a doctor, you could save many lives. And he finally came home one day and said, but I want to be a writer and I want to show people how to live. Mm, that's great. Now, is that, do you see that in your own quest as a writer? You know, uh, I came to writing pretty late. My first book was published when I was 42. So I feel in some ways... I am just now, I've, I've been writing for 10 years, but I've really only been writing full-time for three years. So I feel like I'm just getting to the point where that might be more true. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if I live long enough where, where that goes in the years ahead. But there is, there is a sense uh, that the pain that I had as a pastor representing something that was beautiful and good and yet something that felt like it had a lot of uh, dysfunctions in it, you know. Uh, working out that pain has been a big part of what I've been doing. And, and, um, and also feeling that in the middle of that, if we can be honest about the something beautiful and the something unhelpful, that in the middle of that something even better emerges. You know, some people have likened the kinds of writing that you do, in fact, you specifically, to what was going on in the heart and the, and the life of Martin Luther and, and the, the reformation that occurred because of some of the disaffection and dissatisfaction and disconnect that he experienced. And people have compared you to some of, the, uh, some of that kind of uh, um, experience. And some other people have gotten physically sick when they heard that comparison, but anyway. <laughs> well, because you are the Antichrist. Um, but what, what about that? Is there a reformation occurring, and are you a part of it? Well, uh, it's funny you say that, uh, because one of the really key educational moments of my life was when I was an undergraduate, uh, and I was taking a history course, and our assignment uh, for our final paper was the great man theory of history. Um, and, of course, this is a, sort of a classic freshman assignment. Does, is history made by great men and women, or are great men and women made by history? And uh, I, I was writing about Martin Luther. I had read a couple of Martin Luther biographies, and so I was writing about Martin Luther. And I, I, I was just trying to get through the paper to get a grade, you know, and I, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a big conclusion. And this is how sophisticated I was as a writer at the time. You need a good quote to close off a paper that you have no idea what you're saying. So, <laughs> Because we know the professors only read the last paragraph anyway, right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> professors know that. <laughs> we shouldn't have let the, this, that fact out. But... Uh, and so here I'm writing is Martin Luther made by history or did he make history and I thought what would be a good quote and then I thought of his famous quote uh, I cannot I will not recant 
uh, when he stood at the Diet of Worms. And, and I thought, what a, and as I was writing that, I cannot recant, meaning I'm part of forces that are beyond my control. I will not recant. I'm exercising my will. And, and so I thought, I can't remember which I was arguing. At the point, it didn't really matter. I was trying to get through the paper. But at that point, I decide, I, I remember making a decision. I either have to throw out my entire paper to end up at this quote and do justice to it, or I have to choose a different quote. <laughs> and what did you do? I ended up sticking with the quote and redoing the paper to say that, that the question is not an either-or question, that it's got to be both and. Well, I, I think I... Whatever resonance I've had with my writing is because so many other people are in the same situation. That history has brought us to a moment where there are so many anomalies that aren't explained by our systematic theologies, by our traditional conventional expressions of faith. So there are all these anomalies. There are all these things going wrong uh, where we feel ethically, to live out ethically what we're taught puts us at odds with what our communities want us to do. You put all of that together, and you know a change has got to happen. And, and I, my guess is, though, this change that's happening needs to be very different than the Reformation, because the Reformation was about 95 theses, which are 95 statements. Statements create debate and division and bring you to a new state. But I think what we need now are these questions that bring us on a new quest. And instead of creating debate, they need to create what you said before, wonder and awe and, and humility to search instead of the arrogance of I'm right, you're wrong. I'm, you know, that's where I hope we go. My last question just has to do with uh, advice to young and, uh, and budding writers. Uh, what, what do you want to tell people who say, I, I want to write? Well, first, I don't know if you feel this way, but I am amazed at how many great writers there are. I, I, I feel we are so lucky to be alive right now. I just, every, I just, I get sent a lot of manuscripts, and I'm just blown away how many great writers there are. And uh, I think there are a lot of reasons for this, but uh, one of them is there's a lot of things that need to be said, and uh, another is that uh, I think the Internet is, you know, there's an awful lot of bad we can say, but a lot of people through blogging are doing public writing where they get constant feedback. So many things contributing to this. Uh, it's a very, very exciting time. So I think one of the things I'd say to young writers is uh, don't wait till you get published in a book to think your writing is important. Um, you know, set up a blog, get conversation going, field, you're field testing your writing. Uh, that, that's one, of the th one thing I would say. Probably another thing I would say is Gosh, it's not a bad thing to just expose yourself to all the great writers you can. Uh, there's something about, you know, I mean, it's just part of being so fortunate to be alive, you know, that, that we get to read ancient writers and contemporary writers and everybody in between. So it's a great joy in life, I think. Brian McLaren, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.